Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Welcome to Women on the Line, a national women's current affairs program produced at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. I'm your host, Anya Saravanan. Women on the Line acknowledges this program is produced and presented on the sovereign lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge elders past, present and becoming, as well as the owners of the land you're hearing us from. This week on Women on the Line, I speak with Madison Griffiths, writer, producer and poet about her podcast, Tender. Tender is a Broadway Productions podcast about what happens once women leave abusive relationships. Please be aware that today's show contains descriptions of physical, emotional and sexual abuse. If this type of content is a trigger for you, please know that help is available. You can contact Lifeline on 131114 or lifeline.org.au, 1-800-RESPECT on 1-800-737-732 or your state-based service. Um, my name is Madison Griffiths. I am a writer and producer um, and the producer of the podcast Tender, which is a Broadway production podcast. So season one of Tender followed one story. So it, was, it actually followed my story, um, leaving an abusive relationship. And it started, it started from the, the day of departure, essentially. So it was set, the, the first episode centred around me leaving my partner at the time at the airport and then followed, it followed my story for about a year after that initial departure. That's the entire premise of Tender. It, it follows what happens once people leave abusive relationships and the echo of that experience. And what made you decide to do this production? So when I realised that what had occurred was, was abusive, um, which was something that I came to after everyone else in my family and my friends came to, I... I'm the sort of person that likes having resources and likes to kind of not self-diagnose, but I, I like to be able to go online and, and make sense of the way I'm feeling through this kind of larger lens. And all of the resources I found were very much centred around the process of leaving, which are very important. You know, how does a woman leave? Um, how best is it to get out of these situations? Um, who to call? When to call? But I'd done that. You know, for me, there was no harm in... I, I was very exceptional in that case. So, you know, for a lot of people, that the, the harm is aggravated by the actual leaving, but for me it wasn't. But I was just trying to learn how to live with myself after that and how to make sense of what had happened and how, how to not let the echo of those experiences follow me into my life, um, which was naive because, of course, they were going to. So what I did is I I sat with that thought for a while and I didn't I didn't actually have tender in mind at all. I, I wrote I wrote quite a bit about 
the relationship. I wrote for places like Vice and, and sort of established this kind of um, media profile that was very – it was very obvious that I was out of this, but that, ha- that I had experienced this. And then three years passed and it was still bothering me. There was still this feeling of, of n- nothing was resolved in my mind. If anything, after the three years, it was worse. Like I was feeling very unhinged. And the, the decision to, to go down the audio route was a very personal thing. So I was uh, on a Facebook page in the last three weeks of the relationship, which were the longest three weeks of my life. And I was in, I was overseas with this person who lived there and I was visiting. And I was very much trapped in this space and I, I was terrified. I didn't have anyone, you know, I was on the other side of the world. I had no one to speak to. I was so embarrassed. I, I couldn't tell my family because there was that pride dimension as well. My mum had told me to leave so many times. She hated this person. She, It was a little bit like, you made your bed, you know. I've tried. She kicked me out of home th- three years prior, like, because she didn't want it to happen under her roof. So I just felt very alone. And I joined this Facebook group, which was this sort of local Melbourne feminist collective. And, I mean, I was 21. No, I was 20 at the time. I was really, really young. No, I was 21. Yeah, I was around that age. And... I ended up making a post, I think, from either I made a post from memory or I actually um, spoke to someone. But I made a post essentially saying, I think I might be in an abusive relationship. I'm not entirely sure, but this, 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 this has happened. And this incredible stranger who I hadn't met at the time was like, you need to record this. And then just set the recorder on any night. It's given there's going to be a fight because you're at that point right at the end where like things are just tense. And then when you're in a sound mind the following day, listen, and you'll, you'll know. So that I did that, and it was shocking. The things I heard were terrifying. I kept those recordings close. They were kind of my insurance scheme. It was a little bit like I emailed my travel agent in a daze. I said, I have to get out of here. I just, I don't have any money, but I need to leave. This feels very life or death. And I held those recordings for ages. And then I lost those recordings when I updated my phone and I didn't have them anymore. So I was left with this sort of doubt in my mind that this hadn't happened and, and that, that I had no proof of this ever happening. I never went down a criminal realm. I didn't feel like I could. There were Facebook messages that I'd archived uh, with, with people that I'd, where I detailed things. There were people that had witnessed the abuse that I sort of was, you know, trying really hard to scrounge around and, and, and make a, a roadmap of all of the, the proof that I had. But the proof was in the pudding, the proof, I didn't need proof. So making tender with, with the new tapes and it didn't matter that his voice wasn't in them. It didn't matter that he didn't get to dictate that narrative. They were, it was my turn. And it took me three years to feel like I could believe myself. So there are different types of abuse, physical, sexual, emotional, financial, etc. But a common understanding or misunderstanding of abuse is that it's physical and that's the most insidious form of abuse. What are your thoughts about this sort of hierarchy of abuse? I think there are definitely hierarchies of abuse and I think a lot of the hierarchies have to do with things that actually don't have anything to do with the actual individuals and they have to do larger with systems of power. Um, So for me, I was in a relationship with a man and inevitably those when he was abusive, a lot of it would be gendered and that kind of that formulated this brand new type of abuse that was borrowed from systemic abuse. 
and a lot of it was, you know, I, I, I wasn't necessarily femme presenting in certain parts of the relationship and he was aware of my queerness or my bisexuality at the time. Um, so he would misgender me, he would call me by male names and things like that. So he would borrow things from larger bodies of abuse and perpetuate that in that individual setting. But it always feels individual. That's that's the complexities. One of the other things that I struggled with a lot was the abuse that I experienced was very rarely physical. It was threatening, and obviously, I'm no doubt you'll put content warning at the start of this episode because. But it is kind of impossible to talk about it without, not necessarily detailing things, but alluding to things that happened. So, he would threaten me with physical. Uh, his physical presence there was a lot of sort of pinning down or pushing or or just kind of like asserting himself or you know being in public spaces and he would whisper horrendous threats in my ear and then me having to kind of hold that in my body so the threat of violence was there but the actual violence never was um uh, well very rarely was so for me I was like oh well this isn't abuse this can't be abuse this is just a really weird guy <laughs> like, that I chose to be with. I liked his eccentricity. I liked his, you know, um, kind of who the hell cares attitude. That was I found that really sexy when I was an 18-year-old kid that just was misunderstood. And so I was sort of able to, uh, I guess, say, no, 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 this, isn't, this can't be abuse. This isn't abuse. And that's where the gaslighting was so complex. I didn't know what that was until after the relationship. And that's one of the major themes that you explored in Tinder, the concept of gaslighting. What does gaslighting mean? Gaslighting is essentially this phenomenon um, and it is very systemic and it is very deliberate where the, perpetra- the perpetrator, the person who is gaslighting um, another person, essentially convinces them that they are crazy and that their recollection of events are false and fabricated and that there's something deeply wrong with them and they can't remember things correctly. So it's designed to cast doubt in them. And, and when doubt is there, there's, you know, th- even through a legal context, when there's any sort of aspersion uh, of doubt, it means that perhaps nothing ever really happened and you're all just making it up. So for me, the gaslighting started very early on, probably in the first six months, but it was more, it wasn't necessarily like explicit. It was more he'd react in an absurd way and then it would be he wouldn't tell me why and it would be a product of my behavior or he he he'd do these little tests and and keep me sort of in check but then it got to the stage where i was medicated for my anger issues i've never had anger issues in my life i ha- i was seeing a hypnotherapist i've ne- why would i do that i was undergoing tapping therapy to address my deep dark awful person and then that was all instigated by him essentially convincing me that I was crazy and that he needed to pull me in line. And then you might try to make sense of yourself with this room. You know, it's me. I, I'm just, I, I need help. Um, I really, really do. And it wasn't until that I started, he left for six months. He went overseas. And then I had the space to uh, see my therapist and start a new form of therapy, which is physiotherapy. And due to, you know, issues surrounding sex and consent in that space that I was going through physiotherapy and sex therapy that I started realizing hang on why is it that this doubt and this sort of capacity to make sense of my own experience is only questioned in the context of him why is that why is it that I've never had any issues with others why is it that I don't when I reflect on past relationships past relationship because I was so young I'd only had one other relationship I think fondly about this person I have no 
anger. I have no malice. That was just a relationship until it wasn't. And then I started to go, oh, hang on a minute. This this doesn't feel particularly right. But the gaslighting got to a point where um, I I couldn't – I felt like I couldn't read a map. I felt like I couldn't decide what or how to eat. I, even little things like if I didn't use chopsticks properly, it was because there was some deep fault and he would stand me up in a restaurant or steal my phone or and leave because I wasn't using chopsticks properly. And just little things of – yeah, and there's a lot of stuff I don't remember and I probably won't ever um, get back, but just, just little dimensions of it, he would rewrite the story as it was happening and I would believe that. And then Jess Hill, who's an incredible author, and she wrote See What You Made Me Do, which that line in and of itself is the epitome of, of, of the gaslighting sentiment, See What You Made Me Do. Her work really informed a lot of how I made sense of what happened. And listening back to the old tapes, it was very much like me saying things like, why is this happening? And him saying, don't you remember you wanted this? This is what you asked for. This is what you wanted. And it becomes yours. And it was never mine in the first place. So, yeah, gaslighting is an incredibly uh, insidious and dangerous form of abuse and it's really important that we start. That I'm, I'm really glad that there is discourse surrounding this now. Women on the Line. On community stations around Australia, you're listening to Women on the Line. Don't forget you can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. You're now about to hear an excerpt of Tender, a Broadway Productions podcast about what happens once women leave abusive relationships. I then continue my conversation with Madison Griffiths, the producer of Tender. A man approaches me as I wait to board my flight back home. He sympathetically asks me who died, if that's the reason why I'm sad. He then puts his hand on my shoulder, apprehensively though, as if following orders on how to be nice to a stranger from some kind of cheap airport brochure, on how to be soft, unthreatening, present, helpful. Nobody died, I tell him. Instead, I am leaving someone, in the most trite and stock phrase way, at the airport, two days before Christmas. I am crying because I am lost, because for the last three years I have been in a relationship with a trickster, with somebody who convinced me I was detestable, a nauseating, ugly, unlikable person with perpetual flaws and failures. I am leaving an abusive relationship, and I know that the minute I step onto that airplane, I will be boundless and frightened and angry and ready. So you talked about this a little bit in the very beginning when you said the podcast focuses on the journey after you got out of that abusive relationship. Why did you make this decision? So much of the narrative surrounding abuse, uh, there's sort of this, I like to think about it in this, in this kind of uh, beginning, middle and end. The end is the leaving. When you read stories, when you read these kind of in, incredible exposés or things on The Guardian or, or, or wherever you get your news um, that do these pro incredible profiles on survivors of abuse, 
there's this trajectory that happens. There is the the beginning, had the, the charming period. There is the middle of the most intense, and that's where the, you know, there would be these these points that you remember, these points that are sort of brought out. When I think about survivors in the public eye, I can always ref- remember these actual points. You know that I think it was. Um, uh, I'm not going to name her, but th- there was this one particular person whose dog was killed by her partner, and that was the po- the turning point of like this is a, this is bad. This is really really awful. And then the end is either the court case, either the, the the leaving, or you know. And then it just stops. It just stops. But it doesn't just stop. And um, now that we have this kind of capacity to understand abuse outside of the realms of just physical violence and when that threat of physical violence is subdued which I don't really think it's ever subdued you know because a lot of gaslighting and a lot of these things are very much tied up in perpetuating self-harm you know so so the abuser might convince that the the, uh, survivor that they don't deserve to live that they should just end their lives or that they should you know the all of these things that that they are haunted by this abuse. And how do you explain a ghost of an abuser to someone? You can't. There, there's this. Oh, you know, you're safe now. You're fine. He's gone. And you know, for a lot of people who don't understand abuse, and for a lot of families who don't understand abuse, that can be really frustrating. Seeing that this survivor is so affected by this space. So for me, when I started the story from Heathrow Airport, which was, you know, the the most the, the biggest crescendo of my life it was it was this <laughs> I, I and I do you know there were there were soft and, and nice and really incredible points in that that narrative where I I had gone to be with the love of my life who I so thought and within four hours I had he'd thrown money at me he had you know uh he'd he'd, he'd done something quite violent and awful and he'd said you have eight hours to leave or else and my body clock hadn't even adjusted. I was suddenly like, oh, my goodness. Okay, so I came here to spend three months with you. You told me not to worry about money, which is a power dimension, that you've got me sorted. I'll stay with you. And then suddenly I'm walking the streets of Copenhagen hoping to bump into people to potentially go somewhere with to leave. One thing that was so pertinent for me is one of the last nights I spent with him, I said... You showed me who you were and I listened and that's mine now. You know, I, I, I hope you know that for however long this haunts me, knowing that someone has seen you for who you are will haunt you and it will follow you into every relationship and every woman that you date will realise the moment things start getting really awful that they can't be the first and they won't be the first but the first will have a media profile and the first will have this thing to show and he laughed at me obviously because I was I was a 21 year old unpublished writer with a diary you know there was nothing there to prove so I really sort of declared that that was the start of my story and I wanted that to be the start of my story so when I left when I got on that plane time felt different for me I met this incredible woman on the plane and I I had a full panic attack in the middle of the air, just being like, oh, my God, what am I doing? I can't believe I'm leaving. I can't believe I'm never going to see this person again. My parents don't even know I'm coming home. I'm too embarrassed to tell them. I've got this cheer squad of friends coming to pick me up from the airport to hide me in their homes Mm -hmm. before I find the confidence to actually go and visit my family on Christmas Eve. So there were all these dimensions. And, yeah, I was like, you know what, This, this feels like the most pertinent and most incredibly heightened period of my life and he is not a part of it. 
and how do I make sense of that? How do I? How does he haunt me into dating lives? How does he haunt me into deciding what my career path's going to be? Abuse is rewriting the narrative. So he wrote a story about me, and then it was my turn to rewrite that and to change and to you know completely, yeah, discard that dimension. So for me, I, I was like, okay, if that's the case for me, that has to be the case for others. But I didn't rely on that. So when I made Tender, I got the most incredible emails from women, um, primarily women around the world, that wrote essays about their leaving stories and that point of seeing them in the, down the street or seeing them in these spaces and existing in your own worlds and then having to, to deal with those dimensions. Yeah, I really wanted the story to centre around my story. It had nothing to do with him. Uh, it had to do with the echo of him. It had to do with the silhouette of him. But it didn't have anything to do with his actual physical presence in my life. Because as you know, it's not about physical presence. I really like the point about centering a survivor's experience as the main focus of these stories. Whether it's about you know the actual abuse as it's happening or about the departure or the journey from then on. And a lot of traditional media platforms now often centre the um, person who's causing the harm, their stories, you know, the lovely dad, the affectionate colleague or or whatever it is, instead of the person who was harmed. Why is it important to centre a survivor in their story and how do we fight back against the traditional media models that are not doing that at the moment? There are some really wonderful initiatives. Um, I think Jane Gilmore is the, uh, the journalist who writes. She will rewrite these headlines. Um, and the headlines are horrific. You know, they are very much... I have this kind of image... When you said that, I had the, the, the last image I had was of um, Hannah Baxter's... The, the way Hannah Baxter's partner was described. From a really small place, the first thing we can start doing is acknowledging that these people, these 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 abusers, aren't monsters in... You know, you know, these big cloaks that hide in back alleys. They're people you know and love. They're, they're people that you... They're brothers and, and cousins and people that you've no doubt shared a drink with and, and had a really nice time with. And I think that's something that real, people really struggle with. Mm-hmm. They, by saying, lovely father, they're protecting themselves. You know, that, why didn't I see it? Why didn't I... So we're dealing with this sort of collective guilt when we try and humanise the person who perpetuates abuse or the perpetrator or however you want to describe it, that's protecting us. There was something that I noticed significantly when my partner and I broke up was his friends. It was like I was an alien. They didn't know how to engage with me if they ever did see me, which they did a couple of times. Um, They didn't know about the politics of taking sides in that case. You know, it was very much... Oh, it's a breakup. You know, it's complex. No, it wasn't a breakup. That was not a breakup. I've had breakups. Breakups are tough. You listen to sad music and you get over it and you find someone, something or something, someone else. That was not a breakup. That was concentrated three years of intense emotional manipulation and psychological abuse. So, I think we need to be able to swallow our own pride and our and our own understanding of what abuse looks like for it to be able to be really um, pertinent. One thing that really stuck with me a lot was, you know, my part, my ex-partner, his family are an incredible group of people mm-hmm. and they were so supportive of me and it hurt them like you would not believe, you know, and we, we kept communication ties up for three years, 
three or four years until I felt like I was ready to not have to handle that guilt because they shouldn't feel guilty about this. But there is a way to acknowledge that abuse does exist in these spaces. And the other complex thing is that there is no such thing as a, you know, we, we need to really let go of the binary of good, good and evil. There's no such thing as a perfect survivor. There's no such thing as a perfect perpetrator. The villain and the hero in these instances are really complex. And if people are listening that are in relationships that are toxic or abusive, there are things that survivors do to survive that aren't necessarily kosher or good. I reflect on some of my behaviour during that time and as a way to reclaim power, I was manipulative at times. I was absolutely unhinged because I wanted him to feel something. I was so angry and furious that anger came out in ways that I have to you know, live with. And it wasn't abuse. It was a survival tactic. But if I was so caught up in this narrative of good and evil, it would be very easy for me to just assume that I, I wasn't deserving of these things. So when you see a lot of survivors of abuse, be it, you know, uh, or much more systemic issues like sex workers and and people that um, exist on the margins of very marginalised folk, we should try really, really hard to understand that, yeah, these definitions of what good and evil are do not serve anyone, especially not survivors. So where to from here? Mm. Halfway through Tender... Bethany Atkinson-Quinton, who is just a radio veteran, she's incredible, um, she hosts the Glass House on Triple R, she got me on and then she said, let's let's catch up, let's talk about this. She just started Broadway with um, Izzy Robertson and Arijna and it was time they were looking for new podcasts to focus on. They picked up Tender and it felt like a perfect marriage. We just got $14,000 worth of funding, so we are working on season two. Uh, one thing that I wanted to remind people in, in the process of Tender was, you know, my story was one tiny, tiny, tiny story in this grand scheme of systemic issues surrounding DV. Like, you looked at domestic violence against disabled folk, against older women, against queer people, Indigenous First Nations people. It's the experiences, uh, whilst they share that common thread of power and abuse... They're, they're so incredibly different. So for me, it was really important to situate my story within a gr- larger narrative. Um, so the second season, we were always wanting to focus on an older woman, a woman with children, a woman with these ties that I didn't have um, and how she grappled with with that. And, yeah, or, or, you know, and a woman that had been through, like, the court system, which is something that I have no experience with and, and wasn't a part of my story. So we did find someone... It is in, pr- in pre-production at the moment. She is the most incredible subject. I hate using the word subject because it sounds so clinical, but she she's the most incredible participant in this. Um, she's very, very generous with her story. And, yeah, it's, it, it is an absolute pleasure to work with her and to keep that legacy going. And that's all for Women on the Line today. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. You can find Tender on all the usual podcast platforms and follow the series on Twitter at Tender Podcast. You can also follow Madison Griffiths, the producer of Tender, on Twitter at Mad R. Griffiths. Women on the Line is a national women's current affairs program.
It's produced and presented by a range of women and gender non-conforming broadcasters from 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with funding support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The theme music for Women on the Line is produced by Ripley Cavera. Women on the Line programs can be downloaded from www.3cr.org.au forward slash women on the line. See you next time. Thank you.